how good are numbers? They can blow minds, they can help us see the invisible, and they can even help us count. But in the wrong hands, they can also numb. On Thursday, April 20, Sweathead is hosting our first ever online conference about numbers, number adjacent things, and number identifying people. It's called WTF, the Effing Effectiveness Festival. Over three hours, nine number experts will try to blow your mind one at a time. Do you have a mind? Well, prepare to get it blown by Associate Marketing Professor Colin Campbell in his plea to get you to do A-B testing. Google's Esty Gorman and her demand that we F the funnel. Sage's James Hankins in his sharing about the importance of share of search. Ogilvy's Ella Jenkins poking at our subconscious and how it's our boss. Magic Numbers' Dr. Grace Kite's warning about the dangers of digital attribution. DCDX's Andrew Ross' gravity-defying tale about the black hole consuming Gen Z. Walk headbrain David Tiltman's work about how often creative award winnings are also effing effective. Author and System One's Orlando Wood's sour take about how the advertising brain has turned to lemons. And Jellyfish's Tom Roach will drop some squishy effectiveness pearls of wisdom all over the place. WTF, the effing effectiveness festival it's marketing that will blow your mind from Sweathead, the strategy people inside your head. Online, Thursday, April 20, 2023, from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. ET. That's New York time, baby. Find out more at sweathead.com. Group discounts are available. What's up and welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. Today I have Simon Kemp, who's founder of Kepios, based in Singapore, also chief analyst at Data Reportal. He spent quite a few years in agencies at BBH, in media agencies, as well as about five years at We Are Social. But for the past seven years, Simon's been running his own thing at Kepios, focusing a little bit on trends and data and consulting and all those things. But Simon, why don't you actually tell us what you do? Because you're seven years in, and my theory is it takes three to five years to sort of know what you're doing. Seven years in, you got to know what you're doing, so tell us what it is. So Kepios helps people make sense of what the world is really doing on the internet, nice and simple. That's good. Did you write that yourself? This is one of those things when you start a business, you spend days and days coming out with a polished proposition and then five minutes after it, you start changing it. So it probably took about five years to settle on that one. You're in my three to five year range of sort of working out what you're about. But, you know, with that sentence, at least, I, I know I mentioned you're seven years in. I want to talk about some of these trend reports that you've been doing. I don't even know if it's fair to call them trend reports because they're so detailed and analytical and there's so much data in them. How long have you been doing these things for? More than a decade now, weirdly. So I started doing for clients back in the day, and then it just sort of grew out of that. So the first ones were only a couple of pages long. So far this year, 2023, we've already published 15,000 slides. So that gives you a sense of how big they've become. 25 odd million people a year now read them on track four. So they're fairly hefty in terms of what they do, but um, they're certainly not what they started out intended to be. And so this year, how many slides are you aiming to publish this year? Do you think about years by slide? No, it's not about the number of slides. Ironically, much as everybody seems to be obsessed with the ones that I haven't published. So every year it creeps up slightly. So we do 240 plus countries and that's the thing that pushes the number through. So I think we're the only people in the world that publish the variety of data across that variety of geographies. And that kind of came out of frustration as well. It's like you would never be able to find information beyond North America and Europe when it came to a lot of this activity. So that's the thing that pushes us forward. And one of the nicest things is meeting people around the world that have questions about what folks are doing on the internet. And, you know, if I've got the data and I can, if I'm allowed to publish it, then it goes in the report. So <laughs> scope creep and death by PowerPoint. Do you have a sense of which slide or which kind of slide would have been the most shared or most cited over the past decade? So the headline slide, just the overall numbers, it's weird. People are obsessed with headline figures. 
I get the feeling we're going to talk a lot more about headlines later today. So I'll sort of not go too deep into that. But yeah, people love a good sound bite and a bit of trivia. But I think increasingly, especially over the last few years, there's a couple of slides that look at the overlaps in social media audiences across platforms. That's probably been the one that has generated the most interest in conversations. So as a result of that, it gets shared a lot more widely. But it's funny to see what people embrace and what they don't. One of the weirdest things is one of the most sort of lighthearted slides in the report is one on emoji the emoji that get used the most. And that seems to be one of the most popular as well. So there's no real predicting in advance what's going to be popular and shared. So when I was working in agencies, and even remember back in Australia, getting access in a couple of places to knowledge bases and seeing other strategists present these slides off of the media companies. And there'd be all these data about how many people are using Facebook. And there were these famous slides about you know, the number of people on Facebook being bigger than a particular country. And then the country would change the following year. And I got to tell you, when I was younger, I was a little bit intimidated by that kind of stuff. And then a few years into it, I was like, this is not even useful. <laughs> Ouch. No question there. What's your reaction? Useful. Especially when you get to headline figures like the number of people that use a platform, that is a basic checkbox. It's a bit like telling me the number of people that watch TV. It's like, that's great, but are they watching this channel at this time, this show? Can I reach them? Is it relevant? So I think the report, so the Global Digital Report series is designed to answer the basic questions. It gets you to ground level so that you can then build into the more valuable questions. So one of the biggest challenges when I was starting the work we did at We Are Social, so this is back at the start of the last decade, so 2010, 2011, Every day I would have a client saying, but nobody uses Facebook in Asia or does anybody in Vietnam use social media? And it'd be like, yes. And then they go, have you got any stats? It's like you almost need it as a way of pulling out the barriers to having a conversation. It was thanks to a journalist, actually, that it became a public thing. So an awful lot of agencies, they charge money for these media landscapes and that, that's totally fine because it takes a lot of time to do them. But we were in the fortunate position of treating them as marketing. So when we first started publishing them, we put them up on SlideShare and they gained traction really quickly. So it was evident that there was a lot of people needing to have those sound bites to you know, sort of inform or end, hopefully, various questions. But yeah, they're only ever the start point in my mind. So knowing that nearly 3 billion people use Facebook isn't very useful until you know what you're going to do with Facebook. Could you, in real talk, give me examples of a few questions that you think your slides are currently answering? For example, the most obvious one, real talk, is like, oh, do we really have to move the brand onto TikTok right now? Like, can't we just wait it out? Real talk questions, not like pseudo-academic media planners lauding their numbers over everybody. But like, what do you think of some of the, like, the questions behind the questions that are out there that you're helping to answer right now? It's yeah, so very similar to that one you just asked, actually. So I think the question that I get asked most frequently relates to social media platforms. So should we be on platform X? And that changes every three to six months. The most important bit is that you don't need to be on all of these platforms. And that's what the data very, very clearly reveals. So like I said, there's that, that platform overlaps chart that I referenced earlier. And that tells us that basically even the best platform only has 1% unique reach. 99% of the users are on at least one other platform. If you're on Facebook and YouTube, you're going to reach more than 90% of working age internet users. Oh, sorry. You have the potential to reach if you have budgets that are large enough to feed billions of impressions. But you know that potential is there. So from that perspective, once you've got past the do we need to be on all platforms at once, that slide, that one single slide, which is informed by data from GWI, that basically tells you there's no point after sort of four or five platforms and adding other ones if reach was your main objective, because the diminishing returns are just so great that the amount of money and effort it's going to cost you to add an extra platform is just completely 
wasted. The data itself doesn't tell you the answer. You need to go in with a question and a hypothesis, but having the data there at least allows you to make informed decisions about what you should be doing. But data in itself never tells you the answer. You know, I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that people make when they go in to look at any kind of research is that they expect to open up the report and their work is done for them. It's a little bit like thinking if you're a chef, you know, once the ingredients have been delivered to the restaurant, your job is done. It's like, <laughs> it's a very brave chef that takes just the ingredients and puts them on a plate. You know, you've got to do something. You've got to cook up your recipe and that recipe is going to change all the time. So you've at least got to get the ingredients out of the bag. Like you can't leave them in the bags or boxes and put them on the plate. That'd be even weirder. That'd be like being a restaurant like Audi. Like an Audi restaurant, it's just, here's your plate, there's a box on it, help yourself. Can you give me one other significant question that you think your slides are helping to answer right now? Yeah, so spend across different platforms as well. So I think one of the interesting bits at the end of the report is the digital marketing investments and how those are being allocated and just seeing the trends over time. So it was weird. I was having a conversation with somebody about this just a couple of days ago that they're still having to convince Famous brands, you know, senior marketers at famous brands that they should be investing in digital. A lot of marketers are still thinking that they only need to be in TV and billboards and their job is done. It's like, well, you could probably, you could get away with that, but why don't you look at what the opportunities are and where things are changing? And again, I think you need data to have that conversation. You can't just sort of pluck stuff out the air and think, I think it's going to be on this, so I'll do that. Especially if you're spending other people's money, whether it's your companies or your investors, you need to at least have reasons for doing that. But you know, I think there's no single question that the report answers on its own. It, you've got to come in with a bunch of different hypotheses and then work from there. So I think it's much safer not to go with, here's some things that it answers. Just go in with your questions. If you can't find the answer, then let me know. Why do you think senior marketers of big brands are still questioning digital spend? There's probably a few different reasons there. I think a lot of the time they don't spend as much time, I suppose, as agency folks might spend looking at the trends in there. That's probably unfair on a lot of marketers who do spend a lot of time researching. But just based on the conversations, you know, it's like they've read a headline about a particular platform. They immediately, like you did earlier, they're like, do I really need to be on that? There's a bit of inertia. There's a bit of fear. There's a bit of a lack of familiarity. There's what they do in their personal life versus what they do as a, as a job. And I think unless it's been done before, I suppose that's a bit of trepidation. So I'm not in any way judging. I mean, you know, if you look at the bits of my business that aren't my expertise, if you look at what I do in finance, I'm sure an accountant would just cry looking at the way that I approach managing my books because it's just so backwards. But, you know, I think for the average marketer, there are much more important things to deal with like out of stocks as, to, as opposed to whether Instagram Reels is better than TikTok. So, you know, from that perspective, it's easy to get caught up in your world and think it's the most important thing. But I do find it a little bit unsettling that so much money is being spent on things that are probably easily to prove not the most efficient choices. Such as? Like not being as active on digital as possible. When you look globally, like well over half of advertising spend now goes to digital. That's not to say that you need to do what everybody else is doing, of course, and things vary by country and by demographic and all that kind of stuff. But if you're only doing the same thing you were doing 20, 30 years ago, there's a very good chance that there are better options out there. Now, you may discover, having tried those new things, that actually the stuff you were doing previously is better. It's more efficient, it's more effective, whatever else. It delivers the outcomes you're looking for. But until you've tried it, yeah, it becomes a little bit kind of, if you never try anything new, you're never going to grow, you're never going to learn. And I think if you've already got to the stage where you've stopped, you might as well retire now because that's that. So I know I'm asking this question to somebody whose reports usually have the word digital in them, but how useful is that word anymore? What does it even mean? Does it mean screen connected to internet? Like what? Because it's shifted 
10, 15 years ago, it was obvious. It was like banner ads and pre-rolls and eye blaster things and blah, blah, blah. But now it's a bit murky. So how do you define it? Anything that is served via the internet. So it doesn't even need a screen. So ironically, podcasts are a great example of a non-screen-based digital format. Although ironically, we always listen to them on devices with screens now. Like with so many things in marketing, the definitions we use are distracting from the real conversations that we should be happening, happening, having around things like motivations and outcomes and all that kind of stuff. So I think, like you said, digital, mobile, you name it, it's all a little bit of a distraction from why is the person that we want to reach using this device or consuming this media? What do we want to share with that person? And is this a good opportunity to do that in the right place at the right time? To be honest, whether it's digital or not doesn't matter. But um, the reason why the reports are the digital reports is there was a, a severe lack of information when we started producing them around those digital behaviors. And the demand still seems to be there. The demand keeps growing, ironically. So um, yeah, that's the reason why we focus. Why do you think there was that lack? Partly because of the difficulties of getting hold of accurate information. So an awful lot of, we're talking like, you know, 10, 15 years ago here, an awful lot of the research was based on, we talked to three kids and they told us X. Um, frustratingly, that still happens. So you'll still see headlines going across what should be reputable media saying, I overheard two kids on the subway saying that Instagram is dead and somehow that becomes the biggest story of December. And it's like, this is ridiculous. How can overheard on the subway when we don't even know whether the journalist really did photos or this not happening kind of thing? It just feels like there's an awful lot of nonsense out there. So this is not a new phenomenon. And ironically, 20 years ago, we were all being told that TV was dead for exactly the same reasons that people are saying social media is dead now. Journalists are desperately looking for ways to draw you in and get your attention and sell more advertising to you. So I think whatever it is, whether it's how many people use TikTok, whether it's how many people use Be Real, you know, choose your platform, how many people are using ChatGPT, you're always going to have these questions because you'll have this like real excitement in the media about a thing. And then you'll have somebody that's the naysayer saying, but is anybody using it? And then you'll have this flurry of activity to try and identify whether it's an opportunity. But like I said, that headline data is only the start point. It's a tick box. Does it do the bare minimum? And if it does, then okay, let's move on to the higher value questions of why and what and how and where and all that stuff. But yeah, I think frustratingly, despite having done these reports for more than 10 years, we're still not in a position where that data is ubiquitous. And even though the reports are free to read and they're every country in the world, I'm still to this day meeting very senior marketers in the digital industry that haven't seen them once in a decade. So I've still got work to do. What I'd love to do now is to hear from you three trends and then three futures from your re recent reports. So the loaded question, and I know we've covered some stuff which might come to mind immediately, but let's try to get to some newer material, the material we haven't discussed yet. Three digital trends that kind of amaze you or that you find are amazing other people right now. The biggest takeaway, the biggest surprise, in fact, in our latest round of reports of the 2023 reports is that people are spending less time using the internet than they did last year, which when you unpack it, starts to make a little bit of sense. But I confess when I saw that, I was quite shocked. This is data from GWI, by the way. So it's researched across 50 different countries, hundreds of thousands of survey respondents. So this is a reliable representation of connected behaviors. Yeah. So 20 minutes less per day. So this time last year, we were spending roughly seven hours per day using the internet. That's gone down to just under six hours and 40 minutes per day. So we're still spending a huge amount of time each day. Roughly 40% of our waking life is still spent using connected tech. But it has come down. Now, part of that relates to the fact that we spent more time using the internet during the COVID years. So as you might expect, people being stuck at home during lockdown and whatever else, we turned to digital because we didn't really have a lot of other options. 
So from that perspective, there was heightened use of connected tech. Um, for the past couple of years, that's come back down to roughly the same levels we saw in 2019. The big question is, does that continue to decline? So I spent a lot of time over the past few weeks talking to the trends and analysts at GWI, trends team and analysts. Their interpretation of this data is that people are becoming a lot more discerning in what they do with connected tech. So interestingly, when you look at the motivations for using the internet, wasting time is actually one of the things that's quite high up there. Now, that sounds a little bit like it's a bad thing. But when you remember when you were a teenager, you would have these moments, you know, you're waiting for the bus or your friends are late. And you can't just sit around. I, don't know, I find the older I get, the more I like just sitting, staring out the window. But when you're a teenager, you always need to be busy. So wasting time does, you know, it sounds negative, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, how do you capitalize on dead time? But I think especially when you start looking at older demographics, there is less of a, a decline in the amount of time spent, but people are still being a bit more discerning. So they're less patient of having their time wasted, which from a marketing perspective has huge implications. So that was the biggest takeaway. You asked for three, but I'll pause there and I'll let you unpack that one first. I was just going to relate to it personally. I know that I'm a little bit more selective with podcasts and what I watch and YouTube channels. And sometimes I watch three or four things and I'm done. But there were definitely days during the peak COVID situation where I really did not want my phone to send me my screen time report. I'm sure there were days where I spent 10 hours playing Clash Royale. I don't know if you play it. So awesome. <laughs> I'm addicted to it. I did not need that screen time report. But now my screen time on the phone at least is down to what you're talking about. But then I'll, I'll use the laptop for work as well. So I'm probably online way more than that. Has your personal behavior shifted much? I live on the internet, so no. From the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep, I'm doing something connected. I'm cognizant of that. I don't have concerns about it because I realize the behaviors that were unsettling me emotionally and mentally. So you know, there was that moment where I spent too long reading the trolls on Twitter. I love Twitter as a platform still to this day, but it's very easy to get sucked into conversations that you don't need to get sucked into. You, know, you put your phone down for a moment, you think, does this matter? No, right, just move on. So I've become a little bit more selective, you know, a few more of the nice furry animals and a few less of the angry humans. Were you getting trolled? I do get trolled. It's fascinating how many people dislike facts. Why? One chap, he is anonymous, but... Always a middle-aged English or Aussie dude who's drunk, I'll tell you that. This guy must spend his entire life drunk, but you know from the language he uses, the way that he interacts, it's a man, he's a native English speaker, and he's most likely either British or American, exactly as you said. Uh, just so the language is being used, unless somebody is pretending to be that person, in which case, excellent, I want to meet them. I get these ridiculous tweets that tell me that my data is very clearly wrong because it doesn't represent what they do in their life, which cracks me up. And the number of emails I get that say, this couldn't possibly be true because it doesn't... I get this from brands as well, a famous fashion brand telling me that my data about e-commerce was wrong because it doesn't match what they see in their data. And it's like, I'm terribly sorry, but when you think about the fact that that data includes selling washing machines online and stuff like that, it's not going to match you. It's just not. Well, the fact that there's a difference is like, that's interesting. Like, let's talk about it. Why? I guess people feel that they kind of getting criticized <laughs> indirectly if their data doesn't match up with yours. They're nervous about being called out by someone who maybe doesn't know any better. But Mike, your point there about the difference is where the magic lies. It's absolutely that. I, I look forward to when something isn't what I expect because it's only then that something's going to change. If I open up the data and everything exactly matches my expectation, the report is done. Yeah, I go home because we can predict it. But it's never the case. You know, I'll open it up. I'm like, oh my goodness, why has that changed the way it has? Or why is it not changed the way I expected? Or why is it this way in this country and a different one in that? And those are the bits that I look forward to. I mean, the whole conversation around diversity 
obviously, you know, there's an awful lot talking about our physical differences. But when you start looking at differences in the way people think and the way that they respond to stuff, I think our industry especially needs to embrace different ways of exploring the world and looking at things because far too often I see exactly the same responses to the same stimuli and the person that comes out with a very different interpretation is quite often getting trolled. And that's crazy because a lot of the time I'm looking at it and go, that's really interesting. How did you come to that conclusion? Regardless of whether the conclusion matches whatever we're seeing in the data, it's like, what led you to that? And I think that neurodiversity is one of the bits that, you know, once upon a time, that was what we looked for in planners. And I think that's sort of almost, I don't know if it's got lost, but I see less of it being embraced in the way it used to. Ah, oh, smart person. Hey, pull your mind out of those timesheets for a second and take a look at the Sweathead website. We have three membership levels, starter mode, flight mode, and beast mode. They give you access to a variety of strategy masterclasses, conferences, accelerators, and online learning, some of which has been known to make people cry because they like it, they like it, they feel seen. Make the most of your mind this year or any year and visit www.sweathead.com today. Now back to the interview. Do, 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 do. If you're listening to this and you see people in the strategy world post stuff and it's useful to you, let them know. It makes a difference. Even though that one troll out of 100 will stick with the person more for seven days than your nice comment. A nice comment helps a lot of people like Simon who post on the internet a lot. All right, let's do number two trend. Number two, it's going to have to be social media after that. So just looking at the conversations that are being had in the media over the past 18 months about the death of social media, there is absolutely nothing in the data that corroborates that finding. Even the idea that teenagers are abandoning platform X or platform Y or they're spending less time, it's just nonsense. There is nothing in the data to support this. So it drives me mad. It's like, you know, you get a client coming in and saying, but I heard this. And it's like, okay, let's open up five different data sources from completely different organizations looking at different dynamics of this behavior. Show me which bit of the data tells you that story. You go back and you read the article and, you know, that citation of the two kids on the subway in New York, that was a genuine thing. It was one of the most talked about articles of last year was that. So it's nonsense. I think this is the problem is that we quickly get swept along if we're not doing our due diligence every day. And like you said, you know, due diligence, unfortunately, doesn't sit on a lot of time. If you said, I had to go and check this three different times, you're going to be told you're being inefficient. But the trouble is, unless you've got a 3D perspective you're only going to get a two-dimensional view. So you end up making less informed decisions, I think. I think that one is the one that I'm worried about most, is media misrepresentation and active sort of, I'm going to call it lying because that's what it is. You know, they're distorting facts deliberately to increase traffic to their article. But the unfortunate upshot of that is that people are making very expensive mistakes as businesses based on that misinformation. If it's just like a you know, if it's just a, a Saturday morning read on the couch and it's not got any implications long term, then by all means, you know, exaggerate for effect and whatever else. But when people are losing their jobs as a result of these kinds of things, and admittedly, that's not the only reason why tech is suffering the current round of layoffs, but it's exacerbated the problem. We've got to take a little bit responsibility for this and do a little bit more careful analysis of what's really happening in the world. So much to unpack here, Mark. I'm in danger of just talking and talking, but that's the, probably my number two is misinformation versus what facts and data tell us. Okay. Number three? I think after that, it gets really difficult. Personally, I, I like to look at some slightly more random bits of the data. So I'm fascinated by how I'm going to call these small data points, not because they're not valuable, but because they're standalone. So the rapid increase in connection speeds around the world has totally opened up new experiences for people, especially outside of first world economies. 
So when you look at the rapidly accelerating mobile internet connection speeds across a lot of Southeast Asia and Africa, that starts to get fascinating. I don't have an easy way of unpacking that with you. Um, that's probably a whole podcast in itself, but that one's quite good. The amount of time we spend on our mobiles is going up, even though the amount of time we spend online overall is going down. So that's another interesting one. I mean, yeah, I don't know where to start, Mark. I can't choose three. Uh, is South Korea still number one at the internet? No. Do you know, I, off the top of my head, I can't remember, but I believe it, it was the United Arab Emirates recently, but this keeps on changing. So interestingly, when it comes to fixed internet, Chile is right up there for really rapid fixed internet. I could not tell you why. I don't know whether the, the data is being cleverly manipulated by the, the telcos there. But yeah, so this is data from UCLA, a speed test. So if you ever want to check your own speed test.net, nice little plug. I don't get any money for that, but go and check it because I find it fascinating when you're traveling the world, especially as a planner, go and do this. Like the way that when you go to a new country, you go and look at the supermarket shelves, do a speed test when you're out and about on your 4G, if you're lucky enough to get your, your mobile data paid by your company, but go and test it in different places. It's fascinating to see the realities that people deal with. Like, can you get a mobile internet data connection underground when you're on the subway? In places like London, this is still a challenge, whereas in Singapore, you can't escape it. It's amazing. So it's just these little intricacies that define people's relationships with their devices. Something as simple as that can have a massive difference. So hang on, Chile is number one or UAE? It depends on whether you're looking at the mobile versus the fixed data. Expecting me to remember everything off the top of my head. So fixed internet connections, Chile, coming in at a download speed of 216 megabits per second, followed by China in number two, Singapore in number three. So that was fixed. So when you look at mobile, Qatar was number one, then United Arab Emirates, and then Norway. South Korea comes in number four. This is all to do with 4G, uh, 5G, though. So as soon as you get 5G ubiquitous in a country, the smaller the country, the easier that is. Although Norway is not a small country, so I'm fascinated. Very cool, very cool. All right, so we've done... Three trends. Now let's do three futures. What do we need to pay attention to? What are the most amazing things that we need to pay attention to? Ironically, much as I analyze trends, I don't do forecasts. So just to set this up, this is not my day job. So what I'm talking about here is I'm stepping away from my actual normal work and I'm giving you my perspectives, Simon. The conversations I've been hearing recently are all excited about what ChatGPT is going to do for the future. I'm interested in it, but that's not the aspect of AI that I'm most excited about. When I look at Dali, mid-journey, all these kinds of things, and what those mean for aspects of daily life for all sorts of different people, I am genuinely excited. I'm mildly terrified from what I read about what might go wrong and how people are already abusing these things, but I'm always slightly more optimistic when I see new technology. I'm like, this is the good we could use it for. Now, a lot of the conversations around things like Dali and mid-journey were like, oh, this is going to revolutionize advertising or whatever else. And I'm like, sure it can, but what I really get excited about is, I don't know why this always happens, Mark, but whenever I see a new technology, I'm like, if I was still age 10 or age 14, what would this mean to me? It's like this idea of, I always had this wild imagination, but I was always frustrated by the way that it came to life when I tried to express it creatively. So I wasn't good enough at drawing to be happy with my pictures. I wasn't good enough at writing to be pleased with the stories. If I sat down with these tools today and said, I want you to write me a story about a dinosaur named Jennifer. You can imagine, you just give it a brief. It tells you the story, it animates it, it brings it to life. You know, a few years from now, there is no reason why it shouldn't be creating anime on spec. Now, that's brilliant from an individual perspective. But when you think about what that means in the world of entertainment, that has so many implications because whether it's Netflix, whether it's Hollywood, but then also related to that, what does that mean for advertising? If we're going to spend more time with our own self-created things, can it fit in there without it just being totally weird and distorted? Would advertising become entirely a, 
customized just for the story I'm telling myself, such that the brand appeared in the story. You just think about the implications of these things. Yeah, like I said, I get really excited about it. I know there's going to be bad consequences. It's almost inevitable. Every new technology has the bad side as well. But things that are going to change the world, that, no question. Have you used it in one of your reports yet? Not in the reports. I have been using it in client activities, also in my analysis of stuff. So one of the things, so ChatGPT, I mean, you can't not have a conversation around it at the moment. I will typically ask it, what are the 10 trends I need to know in digital? And it will list them. And interestingly, whether something appears on that list or doesn't is already a story for me. So I'll then say, this is what ChatGPT reckons based on 2021 data. Here's how things have changed since then. The following are still relevant. The following have changed. So a really good example of that, just in our most recent round of reports, we're saying in the top 10 trends, talking about the rise of voice search, which this time last year, I, you know, I did a, a full-on analysis of that and said, I'm really excited about what this means for the future. Fast forward 12 months, that data has not changed the way I expected. It has not grown. It has not evolved in the way that the data suggested it might. Now, that doesn't mean that ChatGPT was wrong. It's just that it's based on slightly older data, which once again highlights the need to check this stuff regularly, do your due diligence. But you know, that kind of stuff is, is amazing for me. If you sat down with it and used it again as an ingredient rather than as a finished meal, so suggest to me the following what should I know about X, Y, and Z? It's brilliant because it saves you having to read 500 articles to come up with a long list of stuff. It sort of condenses it all. Now, I appreciate that there's an awful lot of conversation around whether or not this is stealing other people's IP and plagiarism and all that kind of stuff. But let's face it, as a human, we did that anyway. So Faris always talks about the recombination of stuff. Faris Jacob, you know, this idea that you've never got a new idea. It's always based on what you've seen before. And I think ChatGPT is just a really good way of putting that all together on a single page and shortcutting a lot of the research time. Okay, okay. Number two. When you look at the ways that we entertain ourselves and how that's changed... I think, you know, the move from even just a couple of years ago, we would sit down and watch this idea of binge watching 10 episodes of the same TV show to now where you've got, especially TikTok taking increasing amounts of time. And I know TikTok are trying to push the slightly longer video thing, but it's still predominantly 15 second stuff. We get into this nonsense about shortening attention spans, which is another fallacy that the data fails to support. It's like they have just as much attention. They're just a lot more selective with it and they're less patient. So if you're not captivating their attention immediately, you're going to lose it. So any marketer that tells you that attention spans are falling, what they really mean is that their content is simply not engaging. Harsh, but true. The fact that people do still sit down and spend 10 hours watching the latest season of whatever tells us that people are quite willing to dedicate their attention to things that they enjoy. But we're getting trained to get faster delivery of engagement and value. So TikTok delivering the outcome within 15 seconds, our patience of a story arc is being tested there. An art form to be able to tell a compelling story in 15 seconds, the danger is it always leads to superlatives and you get this increasing sort of, I don't know what the word is, it's not coming to me, having brained book. I've been on TikTok for a while. I have never looked up boobs. I get served a lot of boobs and it's not because I spent, so I, I go past them really quickly sometimes too. And they keep coming at me because they know I'm a middle-aged man. It can read your mind. There's this whole little pocket of things, which is like young women saying, I really like older men. And I'm like, I don't need to see that. Skip, get out, get out. And it keeps coming at me. <laughs> Literally. Does it happen to you? I don't use TikTok. I do not use it because I, I have a danger of once I open a thing like that, I spend far too much of my time on it. And I get sucked into the, the shock and awe and I don't need any more shock and awe in my life. I get fed a lot of stuff about hip flexors and then there'll be a boob thing. I've got to get past that really quickly. I don't want to be on one of these you know, panels one time where someone tries to trick me by saying, hey, 
let's all open up TikTok and look at what. Show your feed. Yeah, show us your feed. <laughs> like, no, get, get out, get out of there, get out. I'm here for the hip flexor content. <laughs> Why do you spend so much time on that versus other stuff? I get the sense that you were partly resistant to social. What is about TikTok more than any other that drew you in? I don't spend more than probably five or 10 minutes on TikTok every day. I'm trying to keep up with kids and I deep down, I'm like, I should launch there. I'm that guy who's like, do I have to like, spend more time on TikTok and more stuff on TikTok? I'm more aggressive on Instagram and uh, on LinkedIn these days, Twitter less less so. And no, I should be trying to do like create more stuff on on YouTube. I'm going to unpack that one because it, it relates back to your question of you know your forecast. That how do you, as Mark specifically, how do you decide which one you're going to dedicate most time to, whether that's for business or for pleasure? So podcasting from a lifestyle point of view, it helped refine my voice. So that was very much about self-actualization. I've used it to build a social circle and to have conversations that I don't normally get access to. Right, so that. Yeah, it started there. It's intimate as well. That's where it started. Twitter, I was on from the get go. I grew up on the internet, 1990s, MIRC, internet relay chat, everything. I was on everything. The internet was always a home for me to talk to people I didn't know about things that I enjoyed talking about that no one near me enjoyed talking about. Right. So I found my people through the internet. That's the DNA of it. It's not like I woke up one day and was like, I need to be on the internet and reach a lot of people. You know, I look at how I reach people and where I reach people. I'm not super analytical, but I'm like, it seems, it seems like getting a little bit of traction here and there and ebbs and flows. Sometimes you're in, sometimes you're out. Yeah, I'm not mega strategic with it because a lot of my foot it's worth, a lot of my publishing is impulsive. And it's like, I have a conversation with someone. I'm like, oh, I've got a thought about that. And I'll go put it up on Instagram and I'm not sitting there going, okay, what are the five most successful content formats for me? I'm just like, I just had a conversation. I've got something to say about it. So I could be better at it. Is that helpful? Absolutely. What's interesting there is that you talk about a little bit the outcomes, but not being strategic about it. I think that's the reality for almost everybody. I really don't know that many, even super strategic planning type people that then take that mentality into how they do their social because social needs to be a bit more spontaneous. I mean, if you're crafting your content months in advance, it's a bit weird. Uh, people can smell it. People can smell it. It was a beautiful setup. Thank you, Mark. Um, so into prediction number three, it, it's this idea that we're still... I know this is a bit of a cliche, but we're still renting success. So we're still dependent on the algorithms and the success of individual platforms that we've invested in for our enduring success as well. I think especially when you look at the risk of TikTok getting banned in certain markets, that's a big danger. So I think prediction number three is that we're going to need to get a little bit better at having things that are in our control as well as using those rented streams. So ironically, a podcast still somewhat dependent on the distribution things, but there's a variety of options there. But things like email newsletters, much as they are probably one of the most unsexy things when it comes to latest trends, they've been around for years. I still remember writing for an internet newsletter back in the late 90s. I mean, we're talking 25, almost 30 years ago here. It's still to this day, some of the most valuable information and some of the people that I respect most are the ones that arrive with meaningful inspiration in my inbox every morning. Now, that's probably partly because of the age I am and the fact that I still have to read email every morning. You know, I think whether it's email, whether it is somehow you are able to deliver content without it being disintermediated by a third party, that is going to be something that we probably need more of as the world gets more and more cluttered and there's a endless number of journalists telling us that X is dead and everybody's abandoned it for Y. Yeah, so that would be part number three. That goes back a little bit to the things that we talked about with the, the generative AI is that where you're able to create content for yourself in ways that you probably would struggle with today without serious investment and third-party help, I think we're going to find a new form of distribution 
I'm being very vague deliberately because I have no idea what it is. If I knew what it was, I'd be going and building it. But I get the sense that these new technologies will result in either a new device or a new delivery or probably both for that content. And I don't believe it's going to be VR headsets. So we'll see. I don't think that's controversial, that last bit. I mean, this idea of renting success, especially if you've made the internet for a while or follow the creator world a little bit, it's a common theme. You're going to be on YouTube, cool, then you're going to be a servant to the algorithm. You need your newsletter, you need your lead magnets, and then it can quickly get into like pyramid selling. I'm slightly joking, but that's what it can feel like sometimes. And podcasts, it's funny, a lot of people like want to do podcasts and newsletters. And the thing is, unless you build them into your life, like build your life around them. And unless you identify as someone who has to do them because it fulfills an emotional need or a social need, if you're just doing it because someone's like, you need to do thought leadership, you're not going to last. Like for me, it comes from a deep set of needs. Whereas I feel alive doing this. I love it. But the thing is right now, pre-pandemic, 1 million podcasts, now about 5 million. And a lot of them are funded or have been funded and you're competing against celebrities. It's much harder. Well, the good news is that people are spending more time consuming podcasts, as our data tells us from GWI. Great insights into that. But you're right. It's certainly not five times bigger, sadly. I've never seen a podcast report that's been useful. Contentious, right? You've, you've given me a brief. Challenge accepted. So, for example, this podcast, this episode, will probably get listened to by about a thousand people within three to four days. At our peak in 2020, we had this massive spike. It would have been a thousand people in a day. Right. So it's not like we're doing crazy numbers, but from what I understand, looking at Reddit a few years ago, they were saying like most podcasts get like 200 listens. So we're in that weird, small to medium area. Right. But I love it. And I've met so many good people through it. It's really, it's intimate, but it's, I know a lot of other people, they would be like, we're not growing. So I'm just not going to do it anymore. Whereas for me, it's a lifestyle. That's the fascinating bit. It depends on how you're defining success. If you want to be Joe Rogan, by all means, you're going to have to look at certain sets of metrics. But if you're doing this, because you want to meet the people you're interviewing, spend some quality time, learn from them, share that with other people and build a couple of intimate relationships. Podcasting is amazing. I wanted to get into doing it more often, but I just don't have the discipline to book the people in advance to do it. I'm terrible at organizing anybody except myself. When I get the opportunity to come and talk to somebody like you, it's like, I want to learn from you. I want to hear your thoughts. I want to hear your perspectives and all that kind of stuff. And I think knowing what you're getting into it for is the most important bit, whether you're doing it for video, whether you're setting up an Instagram, whatever it is you're doing, it doesn't have to be that you're going to be the world's number one and you're going to be Kim Kardashian or Joe Rogan. It's like there are so many other ways to define success that deliver what you want from it. I do worry that a little bit of this creator economy that is out there at the moment only focuses on one or two metrics rather than the richness of connection or sharing value. Well, there's a lot of get rich quick vibes, right? As opposed to how do I want to live? Like podcasting is a part of how I like to live. That's a really different way to turn up to it rather than, you know, I'm going to interview 100 of the most famous people I can meet and I'm going to try to hit the charts, go viral, all that kind of stuff. And discovery sucks with podcasts as well. There's one trend that I've never seen and it's kind of digital. I don't know if there's research into this, but I've been interviewed and sort of talked about pretty personal stuff in other people's podcasts, and I've had people on this podcast, and we've talked about really personal stuff. I'm curious about the role of hearing yourself back after an interview as therapy. A lot of people hear themselves edited, and they're like, oh, I was quite succinct, and I said something quite meaningful, and I just shared a story that was really personal to me for the first time in public, and I feel okay about it. I think there's something really powerful about it. I've never come across research, <laughs> nor have I looked for it, but maybe in your next report... <laughs> The first time you hear your voice recorded as a kid, it freaks you out because the voice that you hear inside your head when you're speaking is very different to the one that everybody else hears. I hated 
as I think everybody else does. I hated my voice the first time I heard it, but you know, the more you do this kind of stuff, the more you get it out there. You get past those initial kind of very weird self-deprecating isn't the right word. I mean, it's a lot more harsh than that, but you know, you get past the initial concerns and you move on to write. So am I actually adding value? I love the fact that you said that, you know, you listen back and you say, I said something succinct. If I ever get the idea that I've said something succinct, I will be very pleased because I waffle endlessly. That's the learning is when you listen back to it, when somebody's edited it, you're like, damn, that's all I needed to say. <laughs> Especially in a professional setting, I think there's a, a huge value there, you know, the HR bit of it of create a presentation, but then have it played back to you and learn from it, not just in terms of how to improve your presentation style, but learn about yourself. That's completely different because, uh, oh, I hate that. I love doing presentations. I don't need to see it back. I'm super self-conscious, you know, like I don't mind my voice actually. I did radio for a while, but I'm conscious of things like I'm not very expressive. I'm quite monotone. My face isn't very animated. But over time, I lean into that. That's part of my character. I don't then need to see it back. At the same time, it's like you learn the bits that you probably want to moderate. So whenever I see myself afterwards presenting on stage, I mean, I walk fast backwards and forwards and it drives me mad watching it. It must drive the audience mad as well. So knowing that is a really valuable learning. It's funny, people don't tell you these things. They're like, I really loved your presentation, but this drove me mad. Please stop doing X, Y, and Z. Unless you swear. You know, if you start cursing, then Americans will immediately tell you you shouldn't do that. As a Scotsman, it, it's almost impossible for me not to swear. I'm quite impressed I've not done it today. But other than that, people very rarely give you that kind of feedback. So you need to be a little bit self-critical. And unfortunately, it's not the sort of thing we would have data for, but I can see there being a really valuable, especially because on the internet, you see yourself quite regularly. Interesting to know what, you know, big TikTok stars like Charlie D'Amelio will think when they see their stuff from five years ago. It's like, did I really do that? I think people have like a mixed relate because I, I listen to some of the interviews with people who are pretty prolific online as well. And I think there's a mixed relationship where sometimes you just got to move on. You don't want to deal with it at all. And then sometimes you look back at that person and you're like, oh, that person was not in a good place when they made that video or that podcast. And now they're in a better place. And so I think there's this mixture of like looking at that person when you're more mature and feeling sympathy and compassion and like at least they tried it and then also probably being a little bit embarrassed by the quality of stuff that you're putting out yeah totally but i think you know this is this is a journey right and i think the easier it is for us to create and publish content of a video format the more likely we are to think five ten years from now because this isn't something that people of our generation as i position us both into that bucket of old people. But we didn't have that challenge unless you were already a child celebrity on television. There's no way you can go back and look at how you've evolved in the way that today's generation are going to. They're going to be able to look back at the silly and the good things that they did. And the world is going to be able to look back on them as well. And deleting that stuff a lot of the time is not as easy as it should be. There's a lot of dangers involved in that, but there's also a lot of value being able to, I mean, if you think about once upon a time, it was looking back at letters we wrote and scrapbooks, whereas now there's an awful lot more there's a greater number of dimensions to that history that we can go back and explore. Hopefully that leads to better things. I think there's an awful lot of negativity around what the digital world and the digital footprint that we leave behind is going to have on the future. But I think there's equal opportunity for it to be good if we use it correctly. Trouble is, an awful lot of it is used to bash us. Well, Simon, if people want to follow your digital footprint, see what I did just there, where's the best place for them to look? So if you want more data, datareportal.com. I really should have thought about how easy it was to say that when I created the name. Folks, if you're thinking of company name, make sure it's easy to say in a podcast environment. So datareportal.com. If you want to catch up with me on Twitter or similar, you'll find me as Eskimon. Nice and easy. And no trolling, people. No trolling. Just stop it. There are better ways to spend your lives. Provocative feedback, welcome, but being a dick, no. All right, Simon, thank you so much for joining me on Sweathead today. I'm sure you're going to keep prolifically publishing all these reports. Oh, that was alliterative. And uh, maybe one of them will be useful to me one day. That was a joke. That was, they're always useful. <laughs> <laughs>
I feel like some people are mean with all their numbers. It's, it's like, look what I've got. You don't get any of this. I love you, Mark. Thank you for that comment. It's a mini revenge, not at you, but definitely towards the people from when I was younger. You couldn't finish without the passive aggressive. So thanks for that. It's all good. You started that way offline. <laughs> Smooth. I'll see you on the internet, Mr. Camp. Cheers. Peace. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sweathead. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. Subscribe to our newsletter. Find us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Sweathead. And if you're interested in finding out about our strategy memberships, company training, or books, visit sweathead.com. Whoop, whoop.